people are very, very afraid of opening up and them being judged. I don't judge and I don't even give answers. There's no wrong and there's no right. I'm not here to preach you about religion. I'm not here to preach you about morals. I'm not here to do anything. It's your space. You're the boss. Hey there, my name is Sean and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, aren't very good at it. One of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with attempt survivors. I've been trying, and I'm going to keep trying. Now, we are talking about suicide. This may not be a good fit for everyone. Please take that into account before you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. If you're a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to share your story, please email us. I'd love to talk. Hello at suicidenoted.com. And if you like the podcast, please keep doing what you're doing. Listen, let people know about it. If you want to rate it or review it, that also helps get the word out. So these stories by these survivors can be heard by more people. Today, I am talking with Fatima. Fatima lives in the United Arab Emirates, and she is a suicide attempt survivor. Her space, she's the boss. Hi, Fatima. How are you? Hi. Is it Fatima or Tima? It's Fatima, but that's my nickname. Tima. What do you want me to call you? Well, whatever you want. (laughs) I'm going to go with what I see on the screen, which is Tima. How did you come to learn about this podcast and then say, I might want to talk about this stuff with this dude? Well, I had a post on Reddit that talked about me me being a suicide attempt survivor and it uh, it was talking about school and grades and whatever and I saw a comment underneath that invited me to join the podcast and I looked for you and I looked for your email and I wanted to share my story to the world because I processed my trauma right now so I feel like I can talk about it better Mm -hmm. when you say you want to share your story with the world I I know that you had some stuff on Reddit, right? Have you shared it with the world? Have you shared it with groups online or offline? Do you talk about it? Well, I never talked about the full story to anyone Mm -hmm. because it's it's a long story and it's complicated and there are many details. So I never talked about it. I would just tell them I'm a suicide survivor and that's it. Mm -hmm. And I'm a psychology student right now. You're studying psychology right now? Yeah. Before mm. my attempt, I was a low student. I was oh. in my third year in a French university. Then I just dropped out after my suicide attempt. I couldn't complete. Wow. Hmm. Well, we'll talk about that if you want to. 
All right. So yeah, sure. I appreciate you being so open and candid. It is a tricky one here because it's all of these stories tend to be not necessarily long stories, big stories, you know, and you said yourself, it's a big story. So I'm wondering when you share this story, at least with me here, where do you think the story begins? We could start when you're born. We could even go before that and we could start with when your parents met. I'll let you start it. And then along the way, I might ask a, a couple questions. Oh, sure. So my name is Fatima. Um, I was born in the UK. I lived there for two and a half years, three years, and then I moved to the UAE. I'm originally from Libya. Um, I was raised in the UAE, so I attended a Catholic school throughout my life, even though I'm Muslim, but I attended the Catholic school. It was like one of the best schools in the UAE. Um, so I was raised by nuns and whatnot. I started feeling off at nine years old. I started feeling like there was something wrong with me. I started feeling like I wasn't like my peers. I started feeling those deep waves of sadness. And I f used to think that my parents didn't love me because I wouldn't get in good grades. I have ADHD, by the way. So that was the reason behind me not getting good grades in school. And I had a sister who was younger than me and my sister would always get good grades and whatnot. And then I wouldn't be as perfect as she was. So there was a, this sort of a competition. Uh, fast forward to high school, I moved schools and I left the Catholic school and I met a group of friends. It was, in, it was an interesting journey. Um, they were very supportive. My mood episode started being worse. And then I, I, my the bipolar started. And they, my friends were very supportive of me and they would handle me very well. But then at home, my parents didn't understand what was going on with me. They thought that I was doing drugs or something. Then I moved out after my senior year. I didn't want to go to the graduation. I didn't think I had hope to go to uni. I was that depressed. And then there was a glimpse of hope when my dad talked to me about this French university called Sorbonne. And Sorbonne is, um, it's very far. Mm -hmm. So I felt like, wow, so I have a new life to begin now. And I started taking care of myself slowly and I moved out. I went to Sorbonne. I was doing well the first year. I learned French for nine months. We had eight hours of class a day, French all day, every day. Wow. And then... <laughs> Hang on. Wait, wait. So when you went to France to, to study there, you didn't speak No, it's French. in Abu Dhabi. It's in Abu Dhabi. We have a branch here. Oh, okay, okay. okay. But you didn't speak French. You had to learn it very quickly. Yeah. Okay. And you're in Abu Dhabi. Okay, I was going to ask what part of UAE. All right, great. So when you're nine, you have ADHD and things are hard and you manage to get through all of that, finish school, which is pretty amazing given what you were going through. And now you're a freshman, I guess. I don't know if you call it that at this school, this well-known school, by the way. It's a good school. I left it after my attempt. I left it. I stayed at it for three years and a half. Okay. And then after my attempt, I couldn't live on my own anymore. So I moved back to 
my place to Ajman, another city in UAE that's two and a half hours far from Abu Dhabi, the capital. All right. So, so, so tell me about that a little bit more if you want to, like from your freshman year to your third year. That's what we say here, right? Freshman, sophomore, junior. Yeah. Um, so for my freshman year, um, uh, we had little classes with eight to nine students because that's how immersion works and that's mm-hmm. how teaching language works. They have this very special technique where mm. they teach us French for nine hours a day, every day, and then they talk to us exclusively in French. So it's very interesting. Um, I met amazing people. I met an amazing girl, and I still talk to her to this day. Her name is Mahra. She would handle my mood swings. I used to have horrible... I was the best in my class. I learned the language the, quick, the quickest. But the, my, my problem was with my mood swings and my anxiety attacks and my panic attacks, where I would just leave class and calm down and try to soothe myself. Hmm. Um before going to Sorbonne, my parents, they knew there was something wrong with me, but they were against any type of treatment. So I didn't go to therapy when I was younger, but my university offered therapy with a center called the American Center for Psychiatry and Neurology, which is a very known center in collaboration with them. So I used to see a therapist and then my therapist told me, you're not okay. And then she just with the help of the student affairs um, manager, they took me with their own car to the psychiatrist office. And then um, he figured out that, you know, I have bipolar and I need to be on meds. So I started my journey with meds, but I was never compliant enough. I would start and then I would stop and I would start and I would stop. And I felt like I was doing something wrong because my parents didn't know I was on meds. I'm wondering when you got that diagnosis, did you think to yourself, yeah, that sounds right. I think I do have that. Yes, everything clicked. Yeah. Everything clicked and I felt like a li- I felt at peace because finally there's an explanation to what I'm going mm. through. Right. Right. And then there's the tricky thing of take finding the meds that work for you and the dosages that work for you. And you said you started and stopped, started and stopped. Do you remember why if you felt like finally and these meds might help, but then you stop. What's going on there? My idea, like with the meds, there was a lot of social stigma against, you know, mental health and medication. Really? So I just felt like, um, why do I need medication? I'm fine because, you know, some days you're fine and some yeah. days you're not. Sure. So when I'm on the meds and then I'm fine, I just stop them because I believe that I'm not bipolar i believe that i'm fine and i believe that everything's going good and i'm lying to myself so i start gaslighting myself wow yeah yeah sure (laughs) by the way you sound like you're one smart cookie how many languages do you speak i speak arabic english and french Uh uh-huh you are diagnosed and things are going up and down I'm, i'm into the story i want to hear more so first year i was managing Second year, I, w- I went to my psychiatrist and I was like, listen, I want medication for my ADHD. And he was like, no, because you're bipolar, because stimulants can cause you to be manic. And then we had this fight over that and it was difficult. It was tough. School got harder because I was a low student. So low in Sorbonne is not like low in any other university. 
mm-hmm. it's tough and i was a i was a new person who a new french speaker delving into law and our professors used to come all the way from france to teach us and then they would go back to the original sorbonne so we would have the course compressed into two weeks oh dear oh yeah it was terrible <laughs> When you say law is different in, in Sorbonne uh, as compared to some other schools, what, what's the main difference? Do you know or is it just really hard? Uh, it's really hard and we don't because I'm in a Muslim and an Arab country. We don't study Sharia law. We study the French civil law. Okay. And the way of teaching, the way that we, I can't choose my subjects, they choose my, my subjects for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that I have to take more than 21 credits a semester and I'm forced to. The fact that we're forced to learn another language on top of French. So we had options like Italian, Spanish, German, and Chinese. Mm. Yeah. So that was my second year. My second year, I struggled a little bit. And I started having more problems with my mental health because I didn't involve my family with with me in the in my journey. I was suffering alone, and I wasn't yeah. compliant on medication, and I didn't find the correct medication. The problem with the medication, though, was that it needed titration. It needed to be titrated like 25 milligrams every two weeks, and the therapeutic dose is like 200 milligrams. So, so if you calculate, that's like three months of waiting. And I wasn't that patient. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so I was on the same med on and off, on and off. And then my episodes started becoming worse. I started doing risky things. Um, I started not sleeping. I cut my hair off. When you say cut your hair off, do you mean off, off or like... Just short. Off, off. Shaved like me. <laughs> cut it off. I didn't shave my head, but I okay. just cut my hair off. All of this is, we can't ignore the fact that you are in the UAE. Your yep. family is Muslim, right? Yes. That's part of this conversation, is it not? Some Sort of some of the expectations or ways of life that might be also affecting you. Is that part of it? Yeah, it's part of it. I mean, I couldn't do what I did in front of my parents or else I would have been dead or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. Right. So, cause uh, when you say promiscuous and I, we do, we do not have to include it, but for some reason that, and maybe this is just me, made me think of that more than some of the other things. Like, I wonder what her dad would do if he, if he heard about that or knew about that, or maybe your mom too. I don't know. You know, both. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Right. I used to live alone. I used to live alone in Abu Dhabi, so it wasn't a big deal, you know. I used to be on my own. Oh, is that common? It's not common, but because Sorbonne is in Abu Dhabi and I live in Ajman, uh, my parents sent me there to study. Right, so you had some freedom. Yeah, I had a lot of freedom. <laughs> but wouldn't the... So I lived for about, I don't know, nine months teaching English in uh, Riyadh in Saudi <laughs> Arabia. I don't remember any women living alone there, but it's possible. Even if there were a woman who was in a sort of situation where she were living alone, I feel like even if your parents aren't around, there's a lot of people around who are still looking at you, who still know you need to be doing certain things that are aligned with certain cultural or religious values. 
Mm -mm. Well, we can contest that because I didn't know people personally. People there were not people who knew my parents. Right. People there were not people who were familiar with my background. I wasn't friends with everyone. I used to go and do my things outside the gates of the university and come back. So nice. no one would know. Sure. Yeah. I was in a city where I knew no one. Did you like that? Yes, I liked that. It mm. made me grow a lot and it changed so many things in me. Mm. I grew wow. thick skin because I lived alone. What was the negative, if anything, about living alone? Well, there are no negatives, but I used to feel lonely sometimes. And I used to feel like my family was way too busy for me. Mm -hmm. they, were too, they were way too indulged in their own lives that we didn't have a lot of time to talk or be together. And then I would come every two weeks. The negatives are, of course, the expectations that they had of me. I mean, they are paying a lot of money to send me to Sorbonne. So they're expecting me to get amazing grades. I did get a scholarship the first year I was there. But then the second year with my, with my mental health declining, things got worse. You know, mm. bipolar sometimes is a progressive dis disease. So it gets worse when you don't treat it. Mm -hmm. It's so tricky because, like you said, some days are better than other days. Some days you feel good. Some days less up and down. And we're like always trying to figure it out and fight and be okay and go to class and, and pass our class and make sure we could see the friend. Like it's so, it's so not linear. Does that make sense? That makes sense. Back to your nonlinear story here. You are... Um, struggling and i'm and we're, we're obviously moving towards this sort of seminal moment so can you continue with that because i am remain curious so third year came and second year i had a very bad like mixed episode where i didn't even go to my exams i couldn't go to the first round of my exams because i was so sick and I was so sick in my head. I couldn't stop my thoughts from running and racing. I couldn't stop myself from self-destructing myself. I couldn't stop myself from the risky behavior. I felt like I was out of control. I, I even put myself in situations where I was in danger. I just didn't care. Substance abuse. Trying to feel okay, right? Yeah. Is that... Is that more risky there than some other places using substances? I assume you're meaning like illegal substances, right? Yeah, alcohol is illegal. Is illegal? <laughs> yeah. Is it really in the UAE? I mean, like for Muslims to drink, you, we right. can't drink. I'm sure some of those kids at that Sorbonne were drinking. Everyone was drinking. Right. I mean, we were teenagers. We were teenagers and stuff. Sure. So. All right, so after that, you're probably grade suffered if you were missing exams. Yeah, and right. then I couldn't stop the obsessive behaviors and I had a suicide attempt, but I didn't die. Nothing happened. I just threw up. Did you try then, to overdose? Yes. Did you want to die or was it something else? You see, people always think that we want to die and we ourselves think we want to die, but I think it's we want to kill the part of ourselves that's hurting. Yeah. The part that's in pain. We want to stop the pain. And it doesn't usually work, unfortunately. At least that's what people have shared with me in my experience. 
So does anybody find out when you try and you wake up and you, you throw up and does father, mother, friends, family? No teacher, one knew. Nobody. That's heavy. That's pretty heavy. Yeah. That's really heavy, right? Trying to take your life and nobody knows. So you wake up or the next day and you're trying to process that. Mm-hmm. What happens then? The next day, I usually wake up and then I try to stand on my own feet. I try to gather myself together and I try to feel better. I try to tell myself that I'm not going to repeat it again. Things are going to go better. I feel a glimpse of hope after I wake up because I sometimes I expect myself to not wake up at all. So when I wake up, it's like, wow, I woke up. So now what next? The way you're talking about it, it sounds like there have been several attempts, right? Several? Yeah, several. Uh, and then is it always the same method? Yes. You don't want to talk about that. I can tell by your body language just slunk back. You don't have to. It's all good. Like I said, I'm going to ask some questions and you can say, no, no, no. started off when I was maybe my first attempt to I was nine. I oh, you tried, tried at nine years old? I tried at nine years old. I oh, felt wow. unloved and all. I took some pill I took some pills and I took the cough syrup and I drank from it. Like nothing really happened to me, but after a while I got I grew, I grew sick and I stopped walking for some reason. I don't know if it was psychological or what, but for a month I couldn't walk. Wow, that's really interesting. And I, there was no diagnosis. At nine so, years old? At nine years old. So your parents knew something was going on. Something was going on, but no one knew what, what, what was it. Yeah. So, yeah, that happened. And then maybe I tried again when I was 13. I tried to overdose on Panadol and um, Advil and those kind of pills. I felt like I wanted to end my life, but then I grew so sick. And then the other time was when I was in high school, I tried to take a mixture of medications and I grew really sick and I had like a double vision Mm. and I started bleeding. It was really weird. I felt like it was the end. But at that time I was like, God, please save me. I don't want to die. I think it's too early. I don't want to die. Please do something for me. Because I felt it coming. It was real. And the medicines were strong. You could feel death was coming. I felt death was coming. Mm. What's that feel like? It's a scary feeling. Because I don't know what's coming after that. I don't know what's going to happen when I'm in my grave. I don't know if there's an afterlife. Because in my religion, they emphasize a lot on like what happens when you're in the grave. The kind of um, punishment that you'd be getting when you're in the grave. Um, afterlife and how tormented you're going to be and stuff like that. Yeah. And you don't believe or you do. Do you believe? Tough one. Tough one. <laughs> All right. And so you tried again. So you had four, three and then we're now in college. Yes. And in college, I tried. I told you when I cut yep. my hair and I had this obsessive so that happened and you know i overdosed and my friend it's so interesting because my friend was in the room with me and i went to my bathroom i took the pills there and i came out 
and I acted so normal with her and I went down for a cup of coffee and I came back and then I just told her to leave and then she left and then everything it was a mixed episode mixed episodes are very hard to navigate they're very hard to explain you feel energetic but it's the negative kind of energy that's taking over yeah so you're more susceptible to killing yourself because you have the energy to versus mm-hmm. normal depression you don't have the energy to kill yourself mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's the difference between normal depression and bipolar depression and especially when so few people know about it that doesn't help because then yeah. you're kind of trying to navigate that thing on your own so third year you drop out you quit or you get let go no third year i i was there for the first semester it was hard I was experiencing mood episodes. I was, I, you know, one thing I'm proud of is that I never skipped a day of therapy. I used to go to therapy every week. And my therapist was a good person. He was great. Was he a good therapist? Yeah, he was a good therapist. He was great. But the thing is, like, he couldn't do anything for me if I wasn't complying on medication, you know, because it's a mental disease. Yeah. Yeah. Talk therapy doesn't help that much. But it helped that I would talk about, you know, my top secrets or the things that no one knows about to him. And then he would guide me and then he would tell me, okay, this person is good. This person is not. You're putting your life in danger. You're not. And uh, he had a good connection with my psychiatrist as well. They were friends. So they, they used to communicate a lot. But what happened, happened, you know, um, I took the ADHD meds at the end of the day and I felt like, I don't know, I just felt like I can manage on my own because they, when they wear off, there's a lot of anger that comes. Mm. From the meds? From, the, From meds. the meds. Third year was a rocky ride. I survived semester one. Semester one, I couldn't show up for my exams because I was so sick. And I couldn't study for them. So I had like grades for maybe two subjects out of seven. So I was planning to repeat in June. And then semester two started. I had a very bad mixed episode and I started writing on the walls of my room. So then the cleaner notified the administration and the administration talked to my doctor and they were like, you have no choice. You have to go to the doctor. You have to be on medication. Mm. So he put me on an, an antipsychotic, and I got better quickly. Mm. And people assume that when you get better quickly, they start having expectations of you and whatnot. They think that you're safe, but that wasn't the truth. Mm. I had this. Yeah, I had the best six weeks of my life with no relapse or anything. Then suddenly a depressive wave hit me. And when it hit me, it was hitting me like in waves. Five days or let's say four days where I'm just feeling worthless, where I'm feeling down, when I'm feeling like I'm nothing, when I'm feeling like I'm failure, I can't study, uh, I can't do anything. So the last throw was I, it was if we did a surprise birthday for a friend and I held the lighter and I was looking at it in a very sad way. And my friend remarked and she was like, what's wrong? The day before my attempt, I went out on a coffee date with a friend. Like she was a good friend. We went, we drank coffee and I was definitely very depressed. And I purchased 
the pills that day. She was with me when I purchased the pills. And I went back to the residence and I felt like, I felt like I'm going to think about it because it wasn't a it wasn't an impulsive action. It was something what, which I really planned. I planned to take my own life away. Mm, how, how long were you planning for? For the time period of my depression or my depressive episode, that was something like 10 days or a week. I was planning very hard. Mm. I was convincing myself that, okay, am I going to do it? Am I not going to do it? But then the feelings of pain that I felt were so deep. I felt a sadness that was so deep. It was crushing my soul. But yet it's amazing that you had, you were still somehow able to do some stuff. That's amazing. Because I mean, it's Uh, probably not an easy thing to do to even go on a coffee date, which for most people is no big deal. But when you're feeling like that, it's probably a big deal. Yeah. I forced myself. Yeah. I forced myself. That's what makes me really think. Because it's not that you're just going and doing things. You got to present to the world something that's a little different than how you're feeling. Mm-hmm. And everybody has to do that a little bit, right? But not like that. That to me is like, that is like, wow, that's a struggle. I had to act my way through it because I didn't want to burden my friend. I didn't want to burden my dad or my mom. I didn't want to burden my therapist. My therapist was on leave anyways. And the mistake that my psychiatrist did was that he brushed me off. He, mm. When I told him I was depressed, he told me it's fine. Everyone feels depressed. He thought yeah. that I was just being a child or something. Okay. He brushed me, he brushed it off. And then what happened, happened after a very short period of time of my last visit to him. And I, it was painful. Every inch of my body was in pain. My hair hurt. <laughs> my teeth hurt. That's how bad depression is. I mean, it's a horrible feeling. And I couldn't stop the looming thoughts of death and suicide and unworthiness. So I tried. So what happened was we had a surprise birthday for a friend the same day. And I showed up. It was in the same floor I lived in. I showed up and then I went back to my room. I locked my room and I took the pills. And then my friend discovered me. She knew I was in a very bad state. So when I wasn't answering my phone and I wasn't responding, they broke the door and they took me out. Hmm. However, when they took me to the clinic, uh, the ambulance responder, the, the guy... He was foreign. He wasn't Arab, but he was such an asshole. Mm. He told me that you're going to jail because it's criminalized. You're going to jail. We're all bipolar. We're all sick. You didn't have to do this. You're such, you're such a this and that, and you're going to get into trouble for what you're doing, and I'm going to have to call the police on you. And he actually called the police, and the police came to campus. What they do? They took my dad's number and they took, because he's my sponsor and they took my number and then they sent two police women with me to the hospital. They have guns? No idea. I was half dead. Literally? <laughs> yeah. But you did not die? I did not Just die. Just so we know for sure. What was the hospital like? 
I showed up to the hospital. They took me to the emergency room. And I remember the voice of my friend, another friend. It was very high. It was very loud. They were speaking in the emergency room and they were sitting on the floor. I remember the supervisor coming and I told them, I'm so hungry. Feed me. That's what I remember. Mm. And I was telling them, I'm fine. I'm fine. Just don't be worried about me. And I took charcoal. They gave me charcoal, activated charcoal to drink. And I drank that. And then I threw up. But then the thing is, the medicines I took, there's no literature on what is the antidote to what I took. So they didn't know what to do with me. Guessing. (laughs) They were so... Yeah, they didn't know. There was no literature, nothing, no research on what to do in case of an overdose of a mood stabilizer that's called Lamictal or Lamotrigine. They just gave me charcoal and they were monitoring me and my heart was suffering. My heart was like I had irregular heartbeats. And then I spent a quite a long time in the emergency room. Then they moved me to a room. When they moved me to a room, I was with two policewomen. Of course, I was showered with a lot of love. I was forced to call my parents. And when I called them, they were like, it's all because of the meds. It's all because of the meds. And they came right away. But I don't remember much. I remember when I went to the room... The two policewomen were there and they were like, you're young. Why did you do that? I mean, you're still 21. Why did you do that? And they were so nice to me that they allowed visitors to come. And my friends came and visited me and they would get me food and stuff. That's that's when my disordered relationship with food started. I, it's because I used to be left alone for long periods of time. And then food was my only comfort mm. and companion. Even my parents couldn't stay with me all the time because they're in another city, like two and a half hours away. And then my siblings are there. So, my, and my parents kept it a secret, of course. They didn't tell my siblings that I tried to commit Ooh. suicide. Okay. Okay. How long were you in the hospital for? Three weeks. So, so it started off of, let's save your life. And then was there a mental health component to it of getting you on different meds or the right, whatever? So I was in the normal hospital and then I was moved to the psychiatric ward and I stayed there for a while. Mm-hmm. And there were a b- bunch of normal, there were normal people just like me mm-hmm. who were suffering from normal issues, normal mental health issues. And they were trying to make me feel better. I didn't adjust in the beginning. I had a problem with adjustment. I used to smoke. So for me, this transition to like, going into zero cigarettes a day it was hard it was hard for me to be confined in a place where there's only tv for entertainment and books to read and i didn't feel like doing either (laughs) sure yeah i used to be excited for meal time they told me that of course there was a they they were like you're bipolar and then they were like you're borderline and then they were like you're bipolar right yeah. But like when they talked to my original psychiatrist, he showed them like the mood logs and everything. And then they were like, yeah, she's bipolar, mm-hmm. not borderline. Because I tried to complete a suicide. I wasn't doing it for attention. I didn't give two shits about anyone. I did mm-hmm. it for myself. I wanted to end my life. I didn't do it to show off or 
want something from other people or want attention. I didn't want attention. And everyone thought I wanted attention. There was a friend of mine, a special one. My fir the first person that I kind of had feelings for. And I told that person to come to the hospital, but that person completely ignored me. And after I recovered and I left the hospital, he was like, um, you're the way you talked was aggressive to me. He was just running away from responsibility. I wasn't aggressive. I just told him, come and see me. I'm in the hospital and I want to see you. Of course, many people came to see me. People from the administration, the head of the law department, he's French, he came. My All my friends came. Um, I felt very surrounded by positive energy and they motivated me to get better. Even though I had issues with my memory and issues with my thinking for the first, like, period. I couldn't type properly. I couldn't talk properly. I was kind of disoriented. So the interesting part is after the psychiatric ward, because I told you it's a crime, they took me to jail for a night. Hang on. <laughs> Hang on one sec here. Back up. All of this is interesting to me, by the way. I was going to ask about this criminalization of suicide or suicide attempt so in the uae mm -hmm. if you try to end your life they can take you to jail and they did yes i was awaiting trial so that's why i spent one night in jail the next morning i went to court i was, my hands were cuffed my legs were cuffed it was very humiliating for me it was a very hard experience. I was depressed. I was tired. I was sick. I couldn't do it. And then I had to wait for about five to six hours to see the attorney general. Of course, my dad talked to her and he was like, my daughter is a law student at Sorbonne and blah, blah, blah. And because there are two types of punishments that you can get. You can get punished for like six months in prison and a monetary fine or you can be exempted. You get exempted if the doctor says that you're mentally ill. He, he needs to write a report. So in my case, he wrote a report that I'm mentally ill and blah, blah, blah. There's no doctor that, that says you're mentally ill and you've tried to end your life. Then you go to jail and or pay money. And get deported. Unless you're from the UAE. Yes. Then you can't get deported. Mm -hmm. I would love to see some data on those people. This could be anywhere ever who have been punished that way. I would be willing to bet every single thing I have that putting somebody in jail or finding them in the history of the world has probably never helped anyone get better, feel better, improve in any way ever. I was traumatized. It was more traumatizing than the whole suicide experience. It's but almost you... like you're begging for them to do it again. To me, to me. Like, hey, yes. you know what? We're going to create a situation where, and I wonder truly if that's not what's really sometimes going on. The good thing, though, is that it's not a thing because um, UAE is a state and there are different emirates so every emirate has a different law so let's say in dubai they're more chill about it so you okay. won't go to jail but in but abu dhabi 
But in Abu Dhabi, you go to jail or you get fined or you get jailed, you get fined or nothing happens to you. So nothing happened to me. But I had to suffer with like the policewoman checking me and jail was a weird experience for me. It was terrible. So the whole checking me and checking my body, I felt like I was violated. And imagine if you don't like it sounds like tell me if I'm wrong here. Your background, your family has some. You're not poor. No, my dad is a university professor. Right. So he's got some some resources, some status that helps. If he didn't, that that experience might have been different. Of course. Yeah. I just relate it to people here. And it's like most places, probably the people who don't have resources or help. Obviously, they just suffer more. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's awful. Mm-hmm. It's awful. It's terrible. So, the, so you got out, and that you were, um, you spent the one day in jail, and then you were released, right? Yeah, because I was awaiting trial. They because they released me from the psychiatric hospital at night, and by law I can't stay outside, so I have to stay in jail under custody until I go until they take me to court. So, but the doctor said officially you're mentally ill so that you didn't have to go to jail, right? He said that, uh, yeah, I didn't have to essentially go to jail or pay a fine or get my passport taken. Where were they going to send you back to? Because they take their, your passport for a while. So that what, you can't travel? I don't get it. I don't really don't understand that. So you can't travel, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe I'm wrong. I mean, I don't remember much detail. That's okay. I'm just wondering. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. I just want to try to understand. Got it. So when did you get out of that whole system and try to... like? How old are you now, by the way? Now I'm 23. All right. So that was about two years ago? Mm Mm-hmm. What's it been like from that day to today? Oh, it's been it's been it's been a rocky ride in the beginning. Yeah. It's been a year and a half by the way, not two okay. years. Got it. Almost two years. I feel like in the beginning I had a very tough period adjusting. I I went into a very deep depression and my parents were understanding in the beginning. Then they were like, You don't want to go back to university? Okay, don't go back to university. Then they flipped on me and they did a whole 180. (laughs) And they were upset that I was depressed all the time and that I was down and that I wasn't going out of my room and that I was eating and that I gained weight. And then we traveled to Turkey. We have a house there. It was the same situation. I was still depressed. I still felt so down. And my parents were against psychiatric treatment at that point. So I wasn't on no meds. So my depression was so deep. And I used to think about suicide every single day. I know you can't speak for your parents, given what you've gone through, which is a lot. I'm wondering why they were against that kind of psychiatric support. Uh, they thought that it was the reason that I tried to commit suicide. Did they ask any doctors if the doctors thought it was the reason? Yeah, they used to think that the doctor was the reason or that the medication was the reason. Because I got better quickly and then I got really better. You know, I got, I was so good. My, I fixed my relationship with them. I was doing good in school. I was taking care of myself. I was wearing good clothes. Mm-hmm. So, hmm. 
it happened so quick like this and it was because of the medication I so the, my relapse so my relapse was something they connected to the medication and to getting psychiatric help they were they were against meds anyways since right. the start right 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 yeah okay so they grew impatient or frustrated yeah our relationship was strained then when i left you know my old uni kicked me out temporarily i wasn't allowed on campus because what happened happened on campus and apparently it's a bad reputation for them so they were like you're not allowed on campus unless you get a report from your doctor another report stating that you're fine and we're going to keep your medication with the nurses and you're going to have to take it every day under our supervision blah 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 and i was like okay so the report took a lot of time the report took more than three weeks from the doctor to produce and I don't know why did he take that much time and through that time I used to go to Abu Dhabi and take medication from the doctor and it wouldn't work no combination would work no antipsychotic would work no antidepressant would work nothing worked I was traumatized it was the effect Mm. of trauma on my body yes so I couldn't Eventually, they told me, come back. And when I came back, I stayed for um, five days. I was miserable. And then I told my parents, I called my parents and I told them, listen, I want you to take me away from here because I can't do this anymore. Mm -hmm. And they were receptive. They came and they took all my clothes and all my things and I signed off and I took my papers out of Sorbonne. I know that that's not where the story ends because you said that you're studying psychology. So something happened and it had to be maybe positive-ish a little bit because you're in school. Yeah. Hmm. So basically after all this happened, my parents were, they're really good people. And they were like, you need to do your IELTS. So I did my IELTS. It's a requirement to go Mm -hmm. to university. And they forced me to do my IELTS. I even slept in the hall. I was that depressed. I was, I was really, I couldn't even do anything. But if it wasn't for their support, I wouldn't be anywhere. So I thought about sociology and social work in the beginning because I wanted to help people. I wanted to give back to my community. I wanted to, to, to help people like not experience this on any level. I didn't want anyone to feel the way I felt. Plus the mental health professionals were shitty people at the place I went. And I wanted to be a good mental health practitioner when I, you know, graduate. Yeah. Yes. Good. So I thought about sociology and then I was like, no, psychology. But then I looked at the study plan for psychology and there was a course called psychological statistics. And I was like, oh, dear Lord, I don't want to take psychology because they have (laughs) psychological statistics and I'm bad at statistics. And I was petrified. But then I started thinking... And then I was like, psychology. I forgot about something. The moment I got released from the hospital, I was in Mm -hmm. the car with my dad. My dad told me, today you're born again. Today you have a new life. What do you want to do? And and in the car, I told him, dad, I want to study psychology. I was sick back then. And my memory was all over the place. But I still told him, I want to study psychology. Then later on, I went and I enrolled. And of course, they took me there to the place. They signed the papers for me. They did everything for me because I wasn't capable of. I was too exhausted. And 
I went to uni and of course in uni it was so hard because all the people that I studied with in high school were there and I changed. I was no longer the, I was no longer the team that they know. I, I gained over 30 pounds. I changed. I'm more depressed. The way I dress changed. I wear abayas all the time. What's an abaya for someone who's not familiar? An abaya is like um, a traditional Arabic dress that's black. Why'd you start wearing that regularly? Because I gained weight and I wasn't confident in my own body. And I didn't. none of my old clothes fit. And mm. I didn't want to buy new clothes. Got it. So you you were different, right? It was different. Yeah. And on the first day of class, I remember I had a course called Differential Psychology. And he asked me, why did you choose psychology? And I told him, because I want to understand myself and understand others and help others and be a clinical psychologist one day. So first semester was really tough because I wasn't medicated. Then second semester, I don't know what compelled me to ask my good friend Mahara for cash. I was like, can you lend me money so I can, so I can go to the psychiatrist and get it done? I just felt I reached a point where I wanted to recover. I reached a point where I was suicidal again, and I knew that I was going to end my life if I didn't take action. Mm. My family didn't want to be in the picture. So I'm not a child. So I had to act. So what I did was I went to the doctors. And when I went to the doctors, he was very nice to me. I went Mm -hmm. to him before that. Before that, I had a fight with my parents in December. And I went to him crying. It was my first time meeting him ever. And my parents were like, it's either you go to the doctors or stay at home or stay with us. So I was like, no, sorry, I'm choosing the doctors. I'm choosing my own mental health. Mm. And I went to him and then I went and I ended up in the emergency room again. Yeah. What happened? They told me we are going to keep you with us for a while. But my dad was like, no. You didn't mm-hmm. like it last time you were in a psychiatric ward. So he signed off the papers and he took me out with him. He took me back home mm-hmm. because he's my, you know, how the guardian system works. So I can't leave the hospital alone. My guardian or my sponsor needs to take me out. What does he teach, by the way? I'm curious. Uh, maxillofacial surgery. That's head and neck surgery. He teaches that? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Just curious. Just curious. Trying to get a picture of the dad. So you're out of the hospital now. He takes you out. That's this year? That was April 2019. Okay. So he takes me out and I struggled in the beginning. I struggled for the coming months. We traveled to Turkey. I didn't enjoy the travel. We had a lot of fights. Mm -hmm. I tried to jump out of the car, but they held me. I used to think about suicide every single day and I used to think about admitting myself into a hospital every single day because I was so suicidal. I was so sick and I wasn't talking to anyone. I wouldn't talk to a friend. I wouldn't talk to anyone and tell them my struggle. I couldn't physically talk to people. So I internalized everything. Then the year started, the school year started and I registered as a psychology student and I kind of gotten, I've gotten busy. I don't know. I got, I've gotten busy. I somehow pulled through. I, I, it was very hard. It was tough. 
what gave me purpose was the fact that I used to teach French. There was a French course. So I used to teach French to the girls and I used to get paid for it. So that was my first job. I built a lot of friendships doing that and it used to fill my time. So that maybe stopped me from killing myself during that period. Then I got my grades. My grades were good, except like two subjects where I got a C because I just didn't put any effort in them. But I got like four A's and two C's. Second semester, I told you, I just felt like I'm going to die. I just felt like um, if I don't do something now, I'm going to lose myself. So I talked to my friend and I told her the whole story and then she offered to help. Mm-hmm. And also that person I talked to you about earlier offered to help as well. And they both offered to help. Nice. And uh, I went to the psychiatrist and he put me on a medication. The next morning I woke up and I was feeling fine. <laughs> I react really well to psychotics and it took a while because I stopped them for almost a year. Right. Yeah. So I was on Abilify, and Abilify worked really well for me. And then we added them, um, an antidepressant, but then Abilify was really good. And my parents were so shocked. The way I dress changed, the way I treat myself changed, the way I conduct things changed, how I'm, I started helping in the house. I started becoming an, a very active person. I kind of became a little, a little manic, but it was good. I didn't do anything risky. So that happened and I've been stable since February. I mean, COVID happened. I've had my days. Sure. I've been depressed. Like I've had depressive episodes, like let's say May, June. I was feeling terrible, but with the medication, it's, it's, it's a lot smoother. That's amazing. And now with Corona, like most places, I assume you're very limited with what you can do, where you can go, who you can see, which definitely doesn't help me. How about you? Yeah, it doesn't help me either. Mm. But I'm not a person who goes out a lot, so it's not a very big deal. But we still go out here. We go out, we come in and stuff, even though the cases are increasing, but... I mean, studying is online, so we just go out for the sake of running errands and stuff. And any woman who wears the abaya, her face is typically covered anyway, right? No, no, no. An abaya is like, um, it's like a dress, but I don't cover my face because no one yeah. in my family covers their face. And a qab is, what, is, is, is a face cover. The women in Saudi Arabia that I encountered, almost all of them would cover Oh, no. It's not of my culture to cover Mm -hmm. my face. Even my mom was against me wearing the abaya, which is the black, like, dress that they wear. Oh, yeah? Don't cover your face. You got a good face. Thank you. What? Where are you right now? Are you in your parents' home in in UAE? Ajman. Yes. Ajman. Who chose that wallpaper behind you? Was that your mom? I chose it. Okay. It was you? It's nice, sort of a floral print, if those of you, because this is a podcast, so people can't see it. (laughs) All right, so what else, now that your words are saying you're somewhat more stable, what helps you get through the day or through a bad moment or have some hope or whatever? The fact that everything happened for a reason, 
the fact that maybe law was not the right path for me and that the universe pulled me from law and put me in the right place, which is psychology, a place where I never imagined I'd be in. Um, the fact that I help people, like on, I'm active on Reddit, I answer people's inquiries, people come to me with ur- urgent questions, people come to me f- for help. On Reddit? What do you people say on come- Reddit? Like your handle? What do you call a... Your, my handle? Is that what it's called on Reddit? Yeah. Like your, can you want to share it so if people hear it and they want to reach out? Uh, yeah, ruined by ADHD. R-U-I-N-E-D-B-Y-A-D-H-D. Yeah. But you're not entirely ruined. It's just No, a it was <laughs> it's just a handle. Helping helps. Yes, and many of my friends, even I reach out to people on Instagram, my friends, my circle, when I see someone posting depressing stuff, they open up to me and then they tell me, okay, we're feeling better. And then I direct them to the right resources, be it the exercises or the journals or just listening to them with empathy. It helps me and it helps them because I don't want anyone to be in my place. And the first thing I ask them is, are you suicidal? Mm-hmm. Because no one asked me that question. I feel like we need to be straightforward. We, don't, we shouldn't be afraid of bringing that question on the table. Yes. So you ask them because no one asked you, what else do you want people to know that they should or should not do or should or should not say? One example is ask, right? Don't yeah. Be straightforward, ask. Nobody did that for you. Are there other examples that, that might be useful for people to uh to know watch out watch out for your happy friends your friends that look like they have it all together sometimes they're the ones that are the most destroyed so you need to check up on your friends you need to ask them about their mental health you need to be deliberate you you shouldn't just have an automatic conversation that's you, you know dead anyways you should go like how's your mental health how do you feel I feel you, I see you, I hear you, I'm there for you. Mm. How are you doing mentally? We should ask those kind of questions because our world is very fast-paced. We're very susceptible to burnout. So a lot of people are, you know, experiencing burnout and now that there's corona, um, it's very hard. Many people lost their jobs. Many people are not content with the fact that we're learning online. So there are so many things. Yeah. You've been dealing with suicidal thoughts in one form or another for, if I'm doing my math right, close to 15 years. Yep. So if there's somebody out there like who felt or is feeling the way you felt when you were nine or a teenager or maybe last year or maybe some in some, some days like right now. Mm-hmm. What would you say to them? They are in pain and they're suffering and maybe they're contemplating and things are really hard. Hold on. Take care of yourself. Take it one step at a time. Take it Mm -hmm. one day at a time. I know it's overwhelming, but you're capable of, you're capable of hanging on. Your pain will not last. Seek help. Be, Be proactive about your mental health. If you can't go out, seek online resources. There's always uh, someone who's offering to, to, to listen. 
check yourself in the emergency room, do whatever you need to do to save your life because the aftermath of suicide is ugly. Mm. You can ruin people's lives. Like I felt it. Many of my friends were traumatized. My own therapist was traumatized. He stopped talking to me after what happened. He shouldn't be a therapist. (laughs) (laughs) You're the second time I've heard something. There was somebody who shared with me something about when they were in a hospital and they were being actively, clearly judgmental to somebody who would try to end their lives. And I remember thinking, you shouldn't be a doctor. And I think you're a criminal. And that is how I feel, actually. I think you're a doctor. I don't know him and it's fine. That type of response, I believe, is criminal. Yes, it is. You certainly shouldn't be a therapist. And I think you're mostly an asshole. Yeah. Well, that's point on, spot on. Yeah, like you don't get a pass because you have a degree. Of course not. You need to have humanity first. First. Yeah. 100%. My my guess is from talking to you and your experiences that you would never do that and you will be a pretty kick-ass, whether you're a therapist or whatever role you are within the world of psychology, you'll be good. Thank you. Don't you think so? After all this stuff, like it's only going to make you better at that. Yes, I'll be better at understanding other people. I mean, I'm, I talk, even now, I deal with really sick people. Very sick people come and talk to me, and I deal with them, and I reassure them. There's this story of, let's say, a girl who was with us in uni. Everyone used to bully her, mm. and uh, because she used to repeat the same story of how she's afraid that she's going to jail because she hugged the guy in an airport in Sudan. Everyone used to go like, stop saying the story. This girl is so dumb. Don't sit with us, whatever. She would come and repeat the whole story to me 20 times and I would comfort her and I would tell her that it's okay, it's fine. Nothing's gonna happen to you, you're strong. And then she would listen to me and she would feel better. Yeah, And there's this other sick guy that I talked to. Um, he's very sick, very, very sick. And many sick people reach out to me, actually, on Reddit or on my mental health page. Good. Good. Yeah. And I know how to deal with them because I empathize with them. I don't just treat them like animals. I treat them as humans first. And I listen to their concerns genuinely. And I try to be non-judgmental because people are very, very afraid of opening up and them being judged. I don't judge and I don't even give answers. So I don't, there's no wrong and there's no right. I'm not here to preach you about religion. I'm not here to preach you about morals. I'm not here to do anything. It's your space. You're the boss. Mm. Yeah. Like, I think that the, the, the best therapist, they definitely have to learn a lot. I don't think most people can just be a therapist at all or a counselor, but a lot of it isn't that complicated. The best therapist that I've experienced and, and I've been to several, not that complicated. May mostly stop talking. Let someone talk, let someone vent. Don't judge. There's it's some very stuff easy. You obviously, have to know, and I'm not suggesting it doesn't take a lot of work to get there, but just create, like you said, let them be the boss. Yeah. yeah. I mean, mostly. I know there's exceptions, right? I mean, if somebody's having 
paranoid delusions and a breakdown, maybe they shouldn't be the boss in that moment. I don't know. You know, I'm not suggesting I, I have these answers, but a lot of it really is like. Yeah, we're like, talking that's... about neurotypicals. Yeah, that's a good word too. You just use. <laughs> is there, you've covered a lot of stuff and you've talked about your story, which I greatly appreciate. And I know people will hear it. They'll appreciate is there any other major sort of things around suicide, be it, be it attempt or ideation or recovery or anything else around that, that you think is a myth, a myth that you'd like to dispel or bust and say, nope, folks, listen, you are wrong. Here's the truth. Um, just because I'm happy doesn't mean that I'm not suicidal. Just because I'm suicidal doesn't mean I want to die. Because death is so vague. You, yeah. you don't know what comes after it. We think we want to die, but, but in reality, we just want to get rid of the pain. So check on your friends. Check on your friends that you think are doing well. Build a good support circle. Communicate your needs well to your psychiatrist, to your therapist. Don't be afraid to, to acquire your rights because those are your rights. Mm. You deserve to live a happy life. You deserve to live a good life. You deserve to be happy. And it comes and it goes in waves. I mean, people think that sometimes, okay, when suicide is impulsive, you should give yourself, we learned that, you, sh you should give yourself at least 40 seconds to think. Mm -hmm. And then those in those 40 seconds, you can actually like, divert your attention from from the idea of suicide you can change the whole outcome of it and you should let people know you should be vocal mm -hmm. you should voice your concerns there is no need for you to suffer alone don't suffer in silence that's a killer that's the killer silence and we're all here for you you'd be amazed at the amount of people that are willing to help that are willing to listen Sometimes we perceive that others might be judgmental and they might not listen to us. But in reality, they, if we went to them. I think people need to find those people and maybe it's finding someone like you. And we can do that now in ways that we used to not be able to with social media, internet. But I think a lot of people's concerns are very valid because they've been treated like shit. Mm -hmm. And people haven't listened well. And people haven't created the space. They haven't done the things... So, yeah, I agree with you. I, I, I just hope that when they do engage with people and have the courage to talk about it, people don't shut them down. Mm -hmm. Yes, 100%. You've been there, and it doesn't take – like, how many times does that have to happen before someone's like, you know what, I'm not taking that chance anymore. I'm just not It doesn't take a lot of times. Yeah, exactly, exactly. What mm -hmm. else do you want to add, Tima, before we depart? Not permanently, but uh, this conversation. Trying to take my own life away taught me many things. And yeah. on, on, on top of them was self-love. Before, mm -hmm. I used to be very self-conscious of myself and my actions and my relationships with people. It allowed me to strengthen my personality. It allowed me to discover areas of myself in myself that I never knew existed before. I grew more resilient. I grew stronger. I became more flexible. I became less judgmental. I became more open-minded. But f the killer for me is self-love. Yes. It's radical now. Is it? You love yourself. 
I love myself a lot. And yes, I'm almost 200, almost at 200 pounds, but I love myself. I love every inch of myself and I'm not willing to give that away. Even if I'm criticized, even if people think the opposite, I don't care. That's cool. That's really cool. I don't care what other people think because no one has been in my shoes. No one went through the same pain that I went through. So don't allow someone who didn't walk in your shoes to decide for you. Don't allow them to judge you. Good. Yeah. What do you do for fun today, tomorrow, when you can? What's something that brings you joy? Uh, Content creating. I have an Instagram page and I create content. What is the page called? It's called at mental health help dot ae so that's double edge so dot ae is a website but you're it's also the name of the handle of the yeah. instagram i'm so confused by instagram tima i really am <laughs> i can't i don't get it you're such an old soul <laughs> no i don't get instagram i don't really understand reddit even though i was on there looking for people because i knew that there would be some people in that world of just wanting to talk about things like this because there aren't that many places to talk about it. Uh, that I know for sure. So that's great that you're offering that to people. And I know you're going to be a kick-ass therapist or are you going to be a therapist or in some other role? I'm going to be a clinical psychologist. So a therapist. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. We don't need the fancy talk clinical. No, you're going to be a therapist. <laughs> you're going to be really good. Thank you so much for, for connecting with me and sharing so openly and honestly. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Tima, take care of yourself. Continue, continue. All good things. All right, you too. All right, Bye-bye. have a good day, Tima. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening. And special thanks to Tima in the United Arab Emirates. If you want to follow us on social media, you can check out Twitter and Facebook at Suicide Noted. We also have a YouTube channel. So if video is your thing, check that out too. If you are an attempt survivor and would like to share your story, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com Until we connect again, Stay strong, do the very best you can. I'll talk to you soon.